Good morning. Please turn in your Bible this morning to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. We're going to be covering the entire chapter this morning. In our passage last week, a problem arose in the early church when Hebraic Jewish Christians were neglecting the distribution of food to widows of the Hellenistic Jewish Christians. As we mentioned last week, all of the earliest Christians were Jews. So this was a dispute between Christians who had adopted the non-sinful aspects of Greek culture and Christians who were thoroughly Jewish in their culture. The church shows seven godly men of integrity to oversee the distribution of food to the widows. One of those was a man named Stephen, who had a very powerful ministry. Opposition to Stephen came from the synagogue of the freedmen, whose members were Jewish, but had once been Roman slaves. I speculated that Stephen may once have been a member of this synagogue, and that the opposition came when he got saved and began talking to them about Jesus. They argued with him, debated him, but were unable to win. So they resorted to deceitful and underhanded measures, stirring up the people against him by twisting his words and lying about him. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They charged him with saying blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They said he never stopped speaking against the temple and against the law of Moses. That brings us up to chapter 7 this morning. Our passage this morning is pretty long, 60 verses to be exact. I suppose we could break it up into three sermons, but that would kind of miss the big point of Stephen's speech. On the other hand, I'm afraid that if I read all 60 verses this morning, it would take up most of our time. So rather than read all of it, I've created my own shortened or abridged version that I'll read for you. It's still pretty long, but I think it gives the essence of Stephen's defense. In other words, Stephen is giving us an abridged version of biblical history all the way from Genesis 12 to 1 Kings, and I'm giving you an abridged version of Stephen's abridged version. I encourage you to read a whole chapter when you get home to make sure I haven't twisted any of it. Anyway, before we start, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to clear away any distractions in our minds this morning. Focus on your word. Show us what you would have for us to learn from this passage and help us to apply it to our lives. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephen has been charged with speaking against God, against Moses, against the law of Moses, and against the temple. So the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this, Stephen replied, brothers and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent Abraham to this land where you are now living. God promised that he and his descendants would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God told Abraham in advance 
that for 400 years your descendants will be enslaved, but afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac became the father of Jacob. Jacob became the father of 12 sons, the patriarchs, Joseph's brothers. Because his brothers were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him, gave Joseph wisdom, and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt. Then a famine struck Egypt and Canaan, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers there to buy grain. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so they would die. Then Moses was born. Pharaoh's daughter brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he saw one of the Israelites being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense by killing the Egyptian. Next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them, but the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. He went over to get a closer look and heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear. The Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt and have come to set them free. Come now, I will send you back to Egypt. Moses led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. He was with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. They made an idol in the form of calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. Our ancestors had the tabernacle with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses. Our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who asked that he might provide a dwelling place for God. But it was Solomon who built the temple. 
However, the Most High does not live in temples made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or well, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? So that is the essence of Stephen's defense. It's important to remember that Stephen was charged with speaking against God, against Moses, against the law of Moses, and against the temple. I suppose Stephen could have said, I did not. They are lying. But that probably wouldn't have been very convincing. So Stephen gives a wonderful 40,000-foot history of the Jewish people from the time of Abraham in Genesis 12, the founder of the Jewish people, all the way to the time of Solomon, who built the temple. On charges of blaspheming or speaking against God. Far from speaking against God, Stephen calls God the God of glory in verse 2, saying the God of glory appeared to Abraham. Stephen says it was God who gave Abraham the promised land verses 3 and 5. God predicted that Abraham's descendants would be enslaved and delivered in verses 4 to 7. God gave Abraham the covenant in verse 8. God was with Joseph and rescued him and gave him wisdom in verses 9 and 10. God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush in verses 30 to 33. God sent Moses to confront Pharaoh in verse 34. And God gave Moses plans for the tabernacle in verse 44. Stephen is not talking against God. He's affirming all that the law of Moses teaches about God. On charges that Stephen is speaking against Moses, in verses 20 and 22, he says Moses was no ordinary child and speaks of how he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Stephen affirms how God personally spoke to Moses from a burning bush. Stephen says it was God who sent Moses to deliver God's people from Egypt and to become their ruler. Stephen affirms the giving of the law to Moses by God from Mount Sinai. Far from speaking against Moses, for Stephen, Moses was the hero, the lawgiver, the ruler of the Jewish people. On charges of speaking against the law of Moses, Stephen affirms that it was God who gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. God gave the circumcision, circumcision as the sign of the covenant, and God gave plans for the tabernacle, all as recorded in the law of Moses. In fact, Stephen shows that he is actually affirming and identifying with the history that Moses wrote in the Law of Moses. For example, he refers to our father Abraham in verse 2, our forefathers in verse 12, to our people in verse 19, to our ancestors in verses 11, 19, 34, and 44, 39 and 44. It becomes very clear in Stephen's speech, he's not speaking against the Law of Moses at all. Another charge is that Stephen speaks against the temple. But the temple is just a more permanent version of the tabernacle, and Stephen affirms that God himself gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle. Stephen then favorably cites the history of how God gave the privilege of building the temple to Solomon. Now, the one part about the temple some might have quibbled with is when Stephen says in verse 48, However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. Although God gave approval for the temple, God cannot be confined to a temple. Wherever God speaks is a holy place, even in the middle of a desert. In verses 30 to 33, Stephen reminded the Sanhedrin that when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush out in the middle of the desert, God said, 
take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. God cannot be fine, confined to a particular earthly building. So in verse 49, Stephen quotes from Isaiah 66, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or well, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Stephen is not attacking the temple as he was charged with doing. He's just saying that God cannot be confined to a temple, not even the great temple in Jerusalem. And Stephen's authority is none other than the great prophet Isaiah. In fact, when Solomon first built that temple, Solomon himself said in 1 Kings 8, But will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I built. So Stephen's point shouldn't have been very controversial. It was very clear that he was not attacking the temple as he has been accused of doing. So by telling the story of Israel, Stephen is answering their charges. He is not speaking against God or Moses or the law of Moses or the temple. And I suspect that if Stephen had stopped here, he may have been acquitted of all charges. The problem is that Stephen then starts making personal application of all this history. He moves from defense to offense. He accuses those rulers of Israel on the Sanhedrin of being just like their rebellious forefathers that Moses had condemned in the law of Moses. Let's read, starting in verse 51, where Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. Far from speaking against God or the law of Moses, as he was accused of doing, Stephen says it is they who have rebelled against God and disobeyed the law of Moses. In fact, in verse 37, Stephen reminded the Sanhedrin that Moses told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. There is no doubt that Stephen believed Jesus was that prophet Moses had predicted. And Stephen says they had betrayed and murdered him. Now, you know how we parents like to brag about our kids, right? Our son is the captain of the football team. Our daughter made the, the honor roll. But when they do something wrong, it's like, do you know what your son did today? All the way through this story, Stephen has been talking about our father, Abraham, and our forefathers and our people and our ancestors. And now all of a sudden it's, you are just like your ancestors. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? When Stephen's enemies reject Jesus, they are siding with their ancestors in Israel's history. Those whose hearts were hardened, who refused to obey, and who rejected God's message and messengers at every turn. The implied message was that they needed to repent and stop siding with those rebellious Israelites and stop or start siding with the Israelites who were tr the true people of God. Jews like Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Isaiah, and the prophets. And accept God's message in Messiah. Needless to say, this went over like a lead balloon. We find in verses 54 to 58, 
When members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Since they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, they were not legally allowed to put anyone to death without Roman permission. But this was pure hateful rage. At that particular moment, they didn't care about Roman law. They just wanted Stephen dead. They became no better than a lynch mob, dragged Stephen out of town to stone him. Now, according to Pharisee oral tradition, which was not actually written down until about 180 years after Stephen's time, the official legal procedure for a stoning was to start by pushing the accused off a two-story building. This probably hindered his ability to get away very quickly. Then a large boulder, which had to be so heavy it took two people to lift it, was dropped on the victim. If the fall and the boulder didn't result in death, others in the area would finish him off with rocks. But this wasn't an official legal action. This was a lynch mob. They didn't throw Stephen off a building. Verse 58 says they dragged him out of the city. They even took their coats off so they could throw better. They laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. They will later send Saul on a mission to arrest Christians in Damascus. But for now, my guess is that Saul is like one of the clerks on our Supreme Court. He is there to assist the court in whatever tasks they assign. The rulers place Stephen in front of them and start throwing rocks, probably of all sizes. Just imagine what it would be like to be on the receiving end of those rocks. Verses 59 and 60 say, While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said that, he fell asleep. Now, I'm sure there are many applications of this passage. I'm just going to give three. Actually, my first is not even really a direct application. It's more of a random observation. Notice the difference between the response to Stephen's message and the response to the message Peter gave on the day of Pentecost. Peter preached to a crowd telling them they had crucified the Messiah and 3,000 people get saved. Stephen tells his audience they had crucified the Messiah and he gets murdered. You just can't package the gospel in some neat formula. So if you just do this or that, you will get the results you want. Frankly, I get annoyed with books that seem to say or imply that if we just use the right approach, the right music, the right methods, more people would get saved. Bottom line of both Peter's message and Stephen's message was basically the same, with drastically different results. There is no secret formula. Our job is to simply be faithful to the task God has given us. Second, Stephen, Stephen had amazing boldness in speaking the truth in love. Notice that Stephen had just called these political and religious leaders stiff-necked people 
who always resist the Holy Spirit and did not obey the law God had given through Moses. Not only that, Stephen said they had betrayed and murdered God's righteous one. Very harsh words indeed. And yet, as they were in the process of stoning him to death, as the stones were slamming into his body, he prayed, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen's harsh words were not said out of hatred. He was speaking the truth in love. Sometimes the truth can be harsh, but we need to speak the truth anyway. We just need to make sure we do it in love. Finally, in verse 53, when Stephen tells them, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. The clear implication is that they need to repent. As I always say, repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. Repentance is a heart attitude that wants to turn from sin and the idols in our life. And faith is a heart that turns in loving devotion to Jesus as our only king and master. If you've never repented of your sin and turned your life over to Jesus in faith as the king and master of your life, please don't keep putting it off. You really don't know when this day when may be your last. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the boldness of people like Stephen. Not only 2,000 years ago, but also around the world today. Grant us and empower us with that boldness to stand for you. And if there's anyone here this morning who has not repented of their sin and turned their hearts and lives over to you, I pray that you, that you would give, not give them rest until they come to you. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.